Spirit. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. God is good. I don't want to embarrass him, but I see Emery Dixon with us this morning. It's been a long time, Emery. Good to see you. I sort of feel like the fourth string quarterback on the football team. Uh, I've practiced with the team. I've learned all the plays. And I've been ready to be put into the game, although I never really expected that to happen. But unforeseen occurrences do occur, uh, like hurricanes. So the coach says you're in the game. So here we are. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1. I think if you're using the Bible under your seat, uh, the page is 816, 816. 2 Corinthians 1, and we'll read verses 3 through 11. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond any ability to endure, so that we despaired even in life. Indeed, our hearts, our hearts, we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Let's pray. Father, as we pause this morning to worship, we confess that we are an anxious people as we await the mighty force that's about to befall us. We pray for those whose lives have been torn apart by the fury of this hurricane, And we now pause and seek mercy and comfort as we hear the words of the psalmist, Be still and know that I am God. So, Father, guide us now with your spirit, grant us wisdom, and may this message bring glory and honor to you, our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. I've titled this sermon... God's purpose in calamity and suffering. And indeed, it is a message about God's purpose in the face of devastation and hardship. But I need to provide a disclaimer up front. 
I don't want anyone to think that I will be providing a theologically brilliant answer to the question that undoubtedly is on people's mind following natural disasters. That being, why does God allow such calamity to occur? Or the more pointed question, why does God allow innocent people to suffer? A truly satisfying answer to these questions is truly beyond my pay grade. The truth is that what God does in carrying out his purpose and will in the wake of natural disasters is a mystery. As we're told in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But scripture does give us some things to ponder, so we'll explore them. From the events in Texas and now Florida, the images we've seen over the past two weeks have been relentless and heart-wrenching over the human suffering, anxiety, and the despair of hopelessness. We've seen images of people leaving their homes with nothing but what's on their backs and what they could carry in a boat, not knowing what they would see when they return. We've seen utter confusion and bewilderment on the faces of people as to what the future holds. These are innocent people who were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. The lost lives, vast numbers of people displaced, homes destroyed, the cost, it's all staggering and beyond our comprehension. The only thing we're assured of is that the despair and suffering that goes on with the cleanup and recovery of such devastation will continue for a very long time. In 1981, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a best-selling book titled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He wrote the book in response to the death of his 14-year-old son. And the fundamental question he posed was, if God is a good and loving God, why is there such suffering and pain in this world? Why do good and innocent people have to suffer so much? Rabbi Kushner's inability to come, with, come up with a satisfying answer shook his belief in God. He ends up rationalizing there, that there must be some things God does not have control over because if he really was all-powerful and loving, he would not have la- allowed the rabbi's son to die. But it seems to me the real question we should be asking is, given this broken and dark world, Why does God choose to sustain this thing we call life? And why does he bless us at all? Paul tells us in Romans 3.10 that there is no one righteous, not even one. In God's eyes, there are no good people. Given our depravity, our sinfulness, our lack of faith, and our self-righteousness, the amazing thing is that God continues to sustain and bless us at all. We deserve nothing but judgment, wrath, and condemnation. Instead, we get grace and mercy and abundant blessings. And we can cite all the standard responses to the questions that Rabbi Kushner was posing as to why God allows suffering, such as God is angry and is showing his wrath. God is punishing us. God is testing our faith. God is, well, you fill in the blank. And we can cite scripture to support any of these responses. But given all that, I must admit 
that there are certain mysteries of God which leave us without truly satisfying or compelling answers. Once again, the secret things of God belong, the secret things belong to our Lord, our God. But the one thing we are certain of is that God is sovereign and ordains all things to come to pass. Romans 11.36, in Romans 11.36, Paul tells us that for from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory. Paul doesn't say that only some things are, are ordained or that the suffering of innocent people is excluded from God's purpose will. Scripture speaks to the fact that God is sovereign over good and evil. God is not the author of evil, but he uses evil and calamity for his own purpose and glory. And there are numerous examples in the Bible. Joseph, for example, was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. Yet in the end, the evil act was used, that evil act was used for good to save the Israelites from annihilation. The ultimate example of God using evil for his own glory, of course, is the use of Pilate and the Jews in the crucifixion of Jesus. The cross was not a time when evil was out of control. No, God's purpose to redeem his people was being culminated with the vicarious sacrifice of Jesus. The amazing thing is that love actually prevailed over evil on the cross. The truth is that God ordained the suffering on the cross to show his grace and his glory. Everything he does is to demonstrate that glory. The unknown for us in this modern world is to understand how evil and natural calamities are used for God's glory and to further his plan of redemption for his people. So what about natural disasters? How are they used for good? Well, only God knows the long-term outcome of the goodness. But in the short term, we saw firsthand in the disaster in Houston the unselfish acts of kindness, bravery, and love as thousands of strangers showed up to rescue those in dire need. So for a brief moment in in the history of humanity, differences in social and political cultures were put aside for the sole purpose of the survival of God's creatures. Theologians call this attribute that God has instilled in all humans common grace. A grace that allows the human race to continue and thrive even in the face of the depravity of man. After all, the human race probably would not have survived without God bestowing common grace upon his creation. And while this common grace of kindness was taking place, just for a very brief moment in time, we were able to observe the goodness of humanity. And for that brief moment, we saw the glory of God being displayed for all the world to see. One thing is for sure. There will be more Harveys and more Irmas and all other natural disasters and tragedies to come, including possible imminent, possible imminent, imminent calamity in our own community. We do not fully understand God's purpose in such calamity, but we do know that he will be there to extend the love and mercy of Christ. 
Now amidst this chaos around us, let's turn our attention to our church and our fellowship of believers. Whether it be those in personal crisis, physical affliction, or those who are grief-stricken, one has to be impressed with the prayer and mercy ministries this congregation graciously extends to those in need. It indeed is a thing of beauty as our church family responds with unselfish grace and love. So I commend you for the love and mercy you all show for your fellow brothers and sisters. And how comforting it is to know that when a need is made known through the church office or simply through the word of mouth, that prayers are raised. In our scripture text this morning, Paul is showing the church of Corinth through example what the love of Christ really looks like. And I am convinced as I observe the ministry of our church family, we too are examples of what love really looks like. Whether through our support of missionaries, our support of local agencies, the Sheds sheds of Hope program, the ministry to our veterans in Milledgeville, our food ministry, and much more, we are indeed demonstrating the love and grace of Christ. And that love and mercy are shown foremost in how we pray and comfort and encourage other members of the church family in their time of need. And Paul gives us, gives us some insights here in our text as to how God prepares us to bring the, the comfort and encouragement to others. In verse 4, Paul tells us that God comforts us in our troubles The ESV version uses the word afflictions. God God comforts us in our troubles and afflictions so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And then in verse 5, Paul tells of the suffering that we will endure for the sake of serving Christ. He says, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ we come our comfort Overflows. So, in effect, God is equipping and preparing us to bring comfort to others through the experience and pain of our own suffering. And this is the reality we see being played out every day among our church family. And what a meaningful and beautiful example to behold as we share the love and grace of Christ with those who are hurting. As I read this passage, I thought about Paul's own struggles up to this point in his life. First, imagine how grateful Paul must have felt about the grace and mercy that God had given him. God transformed him from one who was persecuting and killing Christians to one who was now preaching the gospel at great peril to himself. Second, Paul's life was a life of suffering. Illness, imprisonment, persecution, beating, stoning, imprisonment, anxiety, and so on. And he speaks to that suffering here in verses 8 and 9 of our text. Yet Paul acknowledges that his sufferings were really all about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he actually found comfort and encouragement in his sufferings. That was the kind of faith and hope that Paul hung on to, for without that hope in Christ, he would not have survived. For the Christian, Paul tells us that comfort and encouragement comes from others who have been comforted by God. 
and the knowledge that he will never forsake us, never abandon us, and will surround us with people who will hold us and comfort us and share the love and mercy of God. And for our flock at LOPC, this is what we have been called to do. And I believe we do it very well. So as we minister to those in crisis, we are sharing the love of Christ, the compassion of our Lord, and the hope that has been promised in the redemptive work of the cross. One of the uh, really very important responsibilities of the elders of our church is to shepherd the flock. This involves not only the spiritual growth of our people, but praying for and providing pastoral care. As for me, I will admit that shepherding to a member of our church family comes more easily to others than to me. I will admit I'm often envious of those who seem to have a more enhanced shepherding gift than me. I find myself ill-equipped and lacking as I enter a hospital room or attempt to comfort one who is grieving. So I pray for grace and wisdom, such as, please God, don't let me say or do something stupid or inappropriate. As you may know, my son is a, our son is a Presbyterian pastor in Brooklyn, New York. I once asked him how much mercy and pastoral care training seminarians get in seminary. His response was, not much. That's on-the-job training with God doing the training. And that's certainly what, what, is, that's certainly what I'm experiencing. This is on-the-job training, and I'm definitely a work in progress. Several years ago, we conducted a Sunday school class on suffering using John Piper's book, Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, and D.A. Carson's book, How Long, O God? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. It was a study that not only dealt with the theological aspects of suffering, but also with the practical consideration of comforting those in need. Both offers make the point, as Paul reminds us in our text, that every affliction we experience, either personally or in comforting someone else, is God's way of preparing us to bring the grace and peace and comfort to those in need. In Romans 5.3, Paul tells us that we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. What Paul is telling us here is that the people of God should actually rejoice in their suffering, not because of afflictions and trials are pleasant, but because they bring us into great fellowship with the Father and make us more like Christ. In effect, our sufferings are a means by which we share in the suffering on the cross. When it comes to suffering, whether it be rescued on the flooded streets of Houston or facing serious illness, there are certain realities. First, at its basic level, pain and suffering are the result of a fallen and broken world. It's interesting that in the beginning, there was this perfect environment with no suffering and in eternity there will be no suffering. We are having to endure in this in-between period where Jesus has won the victory over death by the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection 
but there is still suffering and pain. It is in this in-between period that we are relegated to experience before we experience true glory. I don't mean to say that our suffering is necessarily punishment for our sin or that the punishment is some sort of testing of our faith, but only to say that the origin of evil and sin in this world has its origin, the disobedience in the garden. Another reality is that suffering is universal. It's experienced by every human being sometime in their lifetime. Whether it's an infant who is hungry, a child with a skinned knee, or illness, or loss of a loved one, every one of us experiences suffering. It's not a matter of if, but when. And third, suffering is relative. By that I mean we all suffer, but we usually know someone who has undergone much more suffering than we are experiencing. That doesn't ease our suffering, but it tends to give us more compassion to comfort others who are suffering. We saw this a lot in the faces of the people being rescued in Houston, and the often heard comment that others had it worse than them. In this book that I referenced earlier, John Piper makes the case that the suffering by Jesus was the ultimate gift and greatest display of God's goodness, grace, and glory. And that end, that God's ultimate aim is to display his glory, his glory in our suffering. Problem is, it's hard for us as flawed humans to comprehend how the suffering is bringing glory to God in our own lives or to others. When was the last time you really rejoiced in your suffering? If it's someone else's suffering, we tend to see the good that can result. But if it's our own suffering, it's harder to see the good part. Think of the glory, think of the glory and suffering this way. Jesus was a totally innocent human being who suffered in our place to bring us everlasting joy. So just as Jesus suffered for us on the cross, we share in that suffering to display the grace and glory of God. The amazing thing for the Christian is that even in the midst of our suffering, we are able to rejoice in our Redeemer knowing that glory has been promised us beyond the suffering and the pain. I want to close by offering three thoughts which point to the fact that even our suffering, whether it be personal pain, devastation from natural disasters, or horrific evil brought against us, that God has not left us to suffer alone. First, God has not intended us to be here and suffer needlessly. Our loving and merciful God has a perfect plan to use that suffering to accomplish his purpose. He uses pain and suffering to draw us to himself so, so that we will cling to him. Trials and distress are not something unusual in life. They are, put, they are part of what it means to be a human in this fallen world. In Christ, we have an anchor that holds fast in all the storms of life. But if we never sail into those storms, how would we know that? It is in times of despair and sorrow that we reach out to him And if we are his children, we will always find him there waiting to comfort and uphold us through it all. Second, what really matters is how we respond in faith to our suffering. 
Our faith is indeed a gift from God. And that faith, although it may falter in challenging times, cannot be crushed. It will endure and will come through the trials intact so that, as we're told in 1 Peter 1, that enduring faith will bring praise and honor and glory to Christ. Finally, God uses suffering to take our eyes off this world and put them on the next. Scripture continually exhorts us to not get caught up in the things of this world, but to look forward to the world to come. This world and all that is in it will pass away, but the kingdom of God is eternal. As a metaphor for this truth, one only had to observe the debris of damaged goods piled up in front of, ha- in front of houses devastated by the Houston floods. Again, this world and all that is in it will pass away, but the kingdom of God is eternal. C.S. Lewis, in in his typical fashion, gives us a great metaphor regarding suffering. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Let me repeat that. God whispers us in our ple- God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think what Lewis is saying here is that pain and suffering are often the instrument that brings us face to face with our relationship with God and the strength of our faith. The reality is that given our fallen world that we live in, we are in no position to escape suffering. Indeed, suffering and pain are God's way of getting our attention, his megaphone. What God desires from us is to trust him even as our world crumbles about us and to remember, as Paul reminds us, that his grace is sufficient to meet all of our needs. And we need to rest on that promise that he will not forsake us or abandon us and that for the Christian, beyond the suffering, comes the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time of worship as we have presented our prayers and proclaimed the truth of your word. And this has all been done for the purpose of bringing glory to you. Father, we're facing a time of great turmoil and uncertainty, so we ask for strength, comfort that only you can provide. Indeed, you are our rock. You are our fortress in time of need. You have never promised us a life without suffering and pain, but you have promised us that you would never forsake us or abandon us in our time of need. Help us now, Father, to rest on that promise and the knowledge that your grace is indeed sufficient to meet our every need. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our sustainer and our redeemer. Amen.